Hello and welcome to Loving God Through Loving Neighbor, a special six-part class from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thank you for joining us. Let's listen in. All right, so welcome back. Today we are going to talk about the Hindu tradition. So as I was saying before, if last class was barely scratching the surface of the Muslim tradition, today we are going to barely, 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 barely scratch the surface of the Hindu tradition. So this is even, it's, it will seem like a lot, but really it's the depth of the Hindu tradition. Um, it's expansiveness, it's long history, it makes it so diverse. So this is not to say it's all for naught, but this is also to say that the things that we're going to learn today, um, it's even more important to be open to learning from Hindus about how a Hindu person or family practices their tradition. So these could be helpful, but really just being open to listening to how a Hindu would practice their tradition. Uh, so today is, uh, we're going to, as I said, learn about the Hindu tradition. I just broke it up into three, three sections. So we're going to talk just briefly about the origins of the Hindu tradition. And then I'm going to focus mainly on beliefs and practices and mainly beliefs. <laughs> so lots of beliefs and some practices, and then we're going to spend a little time reflecting on the Christian tradition at the very end, and then I would like to leave more time after that for questions for our discussion. So for those of you who are watching on YouTube, sorry there's going to be less reflection, but just more incentive to come to the class to get ask your questions. So let's start in prayer, and then we'll get going. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you again for an evening to gather together to learn about another beautiful religious tradition in this world. Lord, I thank you that all of creation, all cultures, all religions are a reflection of your glory. And I pray that as Christians, we can see the beauty, the diversity within the Hindu tradition, within the lives of our Hindu neighbors and friends and colleagues. May this equip us to be better witnesses of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So. Hinduism is not a religion. Hinduism, the term Hinduism, the actual word itself, comes much, much, much later. So Hindu, the origin of the word Hindu, comes from the, uh, so comes from Sanskrit. So Sanskrit is Sindhu. The term Sindhu in Sanskrit. But then, eventually gets changed into Persian. So and if you're thinking about a map, you have the Indian subcontinent, and next to the Indian subcontinent, you have Persia, right? So Indian subcontinent would be Sindhu. The Persian region, would then that kind of change it to uh, Indu or Indu, then that term. But then the Greek likes to put an H in front of things, so it became, sorry, the, the Persians became Hindu. The Greeks dropped the H and changed the O into A, so it became, instead of Indu, it became in India, essentially. So India we get from the Greeks to the Persians. Okay. Now, Hinduism is not just a religious tradition. It is a philosophy. It is a culture. It is more than just how we understand the term religion, especially in a modern Western context where we try to separate religion and culture. In the Hindu tradition, religion and culture really, you can't, it's really hard to separate the two. 
from each other. So we really have to think about whatever is culturally Hindu is also religiously Hindu and vice versa. It's just really hard to separate the two together. Um, and this is partially because it's existed for such a long time. Um, unlike the Muslim tradition where we can say Prophet Muhammad was born late 6th century, etc., etc., the Christian tradition, Jesus in the 1st century, we don't have distinct origins of a single prophetic figure for the Hindu tradition. It just is. And so it's kind of hard to, to date from that sense. Um, and so we do, the, the earliest things we do have is about 4,000 BCE, which is a long time ago. <laughs> uh, so we have two civilizations on the Sindhu River or the, the Indus Valley River, uh, which kind of runs through modern-day Pakistan. Um, and so we have two different civilizations. We have one called Mahindradaro, and we have another one called Harappa. These civilizations were a little were far from each other, far for that time, far from each other. But from archaeological evidence, we see they share it, a common culture. So, from an archaeological perspective, if you have two cities that are far apart that share a common culture, we can then say there's some type of civilization. Right, a larger culture, a civilization that brings these two together. So if we want to have a, a date of the earliest time, we can talk about the Hindu civilization or become the Hindu civilization, be 4,000 BCE amongst these cities. But again, there may be something before that we just haven't found yet. So it could be even older than that. The other theory of where the Hindu or the Indian Hindu civilization comes from is that there was a migration of people from Central Asia. So this people group from Central Asia were called the Aryans. And so there's a migration both, for, so if you look at a map of Central Asia, they go southeast and southwest. So the, by going southeast, they migrate into the subcontinent of India, bringing with them their religious traditions and their cultures, and thus originating the Hindu tradition. We don't know either one. Both of these stories get told. It could be both. It could be neither. But you might hear bo both of these stories. So I talked about these maps, but I want to show you the map because maps are helpful. So this is that kind of, call that magenta color. Yeah, okay. Magenta color would be the kind of Indus Valley civilization. Um, so again, early civilizations tend to be crowded around rivers. And so you have the Indus Valley River right in the middle of it. On that southern part, you have Mahindradaro. Um, and then a little up the river, you have Harappa. And these two civilizations together in a larger civilization. So that's one of the theories around the Indus Valley civilization. This is where the tradition starts, and they migrate east after that. The other theory is you have the Aryan migration. So the Aryans come from the Caucasus region. And move, they move southeast and southwest. So part of moving southeast is going around the Caspian Sea, eventually getting into the Indus Valley as well. Right, so either way, the civilization is an Indus Valley civilization. That's about it for the origins. <laughs> uh, because we don't really know a lot to talk about the origins. So we talk about what the tradition is and what the tradition uh, practices. So with texts, the Hindu tradition has a lot of texts. And I want to talk about them in order of, of theoretical importance. I say theoretical importance because even though texts like the Vedas are theoretically the most important and the most holy, 
not every Hindu has read the Vedas or knows the Vedas or understands the Vedas. So you don't actually have to know the Vedas to be a Hindu. But the Vedas are a very important part of the Hindu tradition. I told you it was complicated. So, the Vedas are a collection of hymns written in Sanskrit that are revealed to people called rishis or visionaries, both through sight and sound or shruti. So in the Hindu tradition, there is a category of texts called Shruti texts. A Shruti text would be the closest to what we call a revealed text. So the belief is these, are, these Vedas were revealed by the divine to the rishis who put them down into text. So these would be revealed texts. Now these were revealed over many, many, many hundreds of years in different time periods. And they are believed to be divine, um, but not the same way as the Quran. So last, last time we talked about the Quran as the word of God, like the word of God incarnate. This is not the same category as like the logos of God becoming incarnate. So it's a, it's a little bit different. So these are texts that have the essence of God in the text. The text itself is not the same as the Quran. It's a little bit lower than the Quran. So if we're going to talk about like textual holiness with regards to the divine essence, the Quran would be the highest. The Christian tradition would kind of, it's kind of a block here. Some Christian traditions would hold it higher. Some Christian traditions a little lower. So kind of give a block in the Christian traditions. And the Vedas would kind of be solidly in the middle of that. So maybe similar to a way a Christian would understand the text. And this is the word of God, but it's not actually God. Like Jesus is the word of God. The text is about the word of God. It's holy, but it's not Jesus. It's not the Logos incarnate in that sense. Okay. Now the Vedas are not books that people keep at home. In fact, the Vedas were not read by most people until recently. They were preserved solely for the priestly class or the Brahmin class. So the Brahmin class, the priestly class, they were the ones in charge of studying the Vedas and teaching them to people. So if you wanted to learn about the Vedas, you would sit at the foot of a Brahmin or go to a temple and you would listen to the Vedas being taught. But that was really the only way most people had access to the Vedas was by listening to them being taught. And even then, most people didn't listen to them being taught because that was also reserved for other higher stationed people. So the nobility or the warrior classes. So if you were most people, you would have never heard the Vedas for the most part. Really, it's the Brahmins. So the Brahmins would learn it and teach it. The nobility and the warriors would hear it, but they couldn't teach it. So it was very much reserved to the priestly class or the Brahmin class. So as you can see, it's composed about a thousand year period. Um, and again, now that because they're in Sanskrit and a lot of people don't read Sanskrit, so most people can't actually... most people don't read the text because in Sanskrit. Um, <clears throat> now the Vedas themselves are subdivided. There are four Vedas. So Rig Veda, Sama Veda, Yajur Veda, and Atharva Veda. Now, so take the four Vedas. Each one of these books internally is subdivided. So the internal subdivision are these four categories I put below. Um, that is a typo. It should say it has one S. Samhita is one S, not, it's not Samhita, it's just Samhita. Okay, one S. Um, so the first part are hymns. 
So in all four books, the first collection in each four book are hymns. So the belief is that the first, uh, the first revelations, the first listening, created, gave you the hymns. After the hymns, you have the brahmanas. Now, the term, Bra the, there are many words that sound like Brahman or Brahma, so you're going to have to like pay close attention. Because Brahmana, there's Brahman, there's Brahma, then there's Brahmin. And they're all different. Okay, so just try to pay attention to the various flavors of Brahma that, we are, that we'll use today. So Brahmanas are directions on how to perform rituals in the temple. So it starts with hymns, and then you have rituals. All right, the Aranyakas are special philosophical rituals. Um, they also kind of have like magical spells, which are kind of cool. Like some of the magical spells are pretty interesting. But the last one, the Upanishads, the philosophical texts, this last category, are the ones that are perhaps the most used today. So later on, I'll be talking about a philosophical kind of Hinduism. And they focus mostly on these Upanishad texts, this last series of texts. So... The first three are for temple, ritual, worship, etc. And this last one is really philosophical. And it's a rational defense of the Hindu beliefs. The Upanishads. So, those are the Vedas. But I want to dig deeper into the Upanishads. So, when we think about the beliefs of the Hindu tradition, a lot of them come from the Upanishads. So, when we think about reincarnation, or in the Hindu tradition, they would call it samsara, where they talk about karma. A lot of this comes from the Upanishads. So, in general, here are kind of the main ideas. So, in our life, there is karma. Karma are actions that you do that lead to reward or punishment. But these are not rewards or punishment meted out necessarily by God figures. Now, it might be for some Hindus, gods are involved. And for some Hindus, gods are not involved. Rather, it is all actions are either leading you towards liberation or towards entrapment. So, liberation or entrapment from what? From samsara or the cycle of rebirth. So, the goal is to escape this cycle of rebirth. That's the goal. Everybody's stuck in it. The goal is moksha. Or liberation from samsara. Liberation from the cycle that we're all stuck in. So in the Christian tradition, we would say the problem that, we're all, that we all face is sin and the fallenness of the world. And the goal is redemption and union with God. To live in the new heavens and the new earth and the beatific vision of the face of God. Hindu tradition, the problem everybody faces is that we're all stuck in the cycle of samsara. We're all stuck, stuck with bad karma and we need to achieve moksha. Or liberation from the cycle of samsara. <clears throat> now, this gets really tricky because you can't actually teach people how to achieve moksha. You just know when it happens. Yeah, that's about the best explanation I can give. Um, <laughs> um, it can be achieved in a lifetime. So you can achieve it, but you don't actually... Uh, it doesn't happen until you die. So you can achieve moksha and be alive. And then once you die, then your soul is liberated. So it's not that you achieve moksha and immediately you die. But rather you achieve moksha, you can still live. Once you die, your soul will be liberated from the cycle of samsara. 
And there are many interpretations in the Hindu tradition of exactly how do you get liberated and what does it mean and who do you learn from, etc. Now, what is liberated? Atman, or the soul. The thing that makes you human is Atman. This is different than Brahman. So Brahman is the supreme metaphysical deity. So in the Hindu tradition, there actually is, in some sense, one deity, Brahman. Brahman is the one deity. It is the one reality behind all things. So when you think about the Hindu tradition and you think, oh, there's all these gods, the pantheon of gods, da-da-da, they are actually not the ultimate reality. Behind those gods is Brahman. Brahman is the ultimate reality. These other gods are manifestations of Brahman. For people to be able to access Brahman. So in, a, in one way or one lens, Hindu, Hindu tradition is monotheistic. And there's one deity, Brahman. Now this is not a personal deity necessarily. It is not a dynamic deity. But there is one. It's Brahman. And some, some Hindus might say even the word deity is misleading because it has this idea of person or, or character. There, I would rather, rather they would say there's one, real, there's one reality. That one reality is Brahman. The realness of the real, the most real thing that is, is Brahman. <clears throat> okay. The second category of text, so we talk about uh, smriti texts. These are the texts that are heard. Um, the smriti texts are texts that are remembered. So smriti texts are not revelation from the divine to people, but these are the texts that most Hindus interact with for their faith and practice. So when we're talking about what are the texts that Hindus actually engage with, it are these texts, the smriti texts. So category... Theoretically, the Vedas are here, right? Smriti texts and the Smriti texts are down here. But most people interact at this level of text, not this level of text. So when you ask yourself, what do Hindus believe? How do Hindus understand tradition? It's mostly this level of text. And this level has a different genre. So it's not hymns, rituals, or philosophies. They are epics or stories or law codes. So as these types of stories, particularly two stories, so the Ramayana, the Ramayama uh, has been made into a soap opera in India. It's a very famous soap. You can YouTube it. Um, it gets replayed all the time. Movies get made after the Ramayama. There are kids' cartoons of the Ramayama. There are comic books of the Ramayama. It is a very, very well-known, very prominent story uh, in India, Sri Lanka, and you know, Hindu countries. Um, and this, there are, again, dances, etc., lots of things that are put together. The other one is the Mahabharata. The Mahabharata is the longest poem in the world. It has over 100,000 verses. So it's really long. Uh, and it is a grand epic that makes Shakespeare look like, um, oh, what's Charlotte's Web? It's just so complicated and so much going on. <laughs> um, so most people don't engage the whole text of the Mahabharata. They engage a story within the Mahabharata called the Bhagavad Gita. So you have the 100,000 verses of the Mahabharata. Within that, you have a smaller story that gets pulled out. And then that smaller story is called the Bhagavad Gita. 
So if there are two texts that I could name that most Hindus engage with, it would be Bhagavad Gita and the Ramayama. So probably the two texts most Hindus know of rather than the whole Mahabharata or the Vedas in that sense. Now, the Mahabharata is a dialogue between uh, Krishna, who is an incarnation of Vishnu, and a uh, royal figure named Arjuna. Now, I will, I will get to the story uh, for both of these. So this is... Wait, this way? Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, wait. That's... Okay. Do, 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 do. Okay, that does work. Okay. Let me introduce you to this. So... Um, in the Ramayama, so in the Ramayama, both of these stories are stories about incarnations of the god Vishnu. The god Vishnu is generally depicted in the color blue. So if you see a painting and it has a blue figure, it'll generally be an incarnation, frequently incarnation, particularly Krishna. Um, so here are the three main figures. I'm going to go back to tell the story. Okay, so Rama is the prince. So Rama is the main, the protagonist of the story. Right, so Rama is the son of the king. The king wants to abdicate his throne in favor of his son, Rama. So, actually, did I talk about Dharma before I got to this? I'm going the wrong direction. Is Dharma on this slide? It's not on this slide. Okay, I need to talk about Dharma before I talk about this story. Okay, so the Ramayama, the Ramayama is a story of dharma. So D-H-A-R-M-A. Dharma. D-H-A-R-M-A. Dharma is the right thing to do at the right time. It is bringing the world, in the, or really the cosmos, into harmony. Setting, setting the universe straight. So to do one's dharma is to do the thing you're supposed to do at the right time, at the right place, in the right way. And so the Ramayama is a story about dharma. How doing what is right in the right time, in the right place, may be very difficult, but it is the duty that all humans are supposed to do. So that, that's the moral of the Ramayama story. Okay, so Rama is the son of a king named Dasaratha. So Dasaratha is the king, and he wants to abdicate his throne in favor of his son. But his wife doesn't want him to do that, since... Um, Instead, he made a promise to his wife that he would exile his son, Rama. So he exiles his son, Rama. Why? Because of Dharma. Dharma means the king has to make it true on his promise, even though he doesn't want to do it. So he has to follow Dharma. So he exiles Rama. And Rama, instead of usurping the king, even though he's the oldest son, does his Dharma and he goes out to exile. So they're all following Dharma. They're doing the thing they're supposed to do. And he goes into exile with his consort uh, Sita. So in the Hindu tradition, there are many times there are male protagonists and they have female consorts that go with them. So in this case, Sita is the consort and he also goes with his uh, half-brother. So when I showed you that picture, Rama is in the middle, Sita was the female figure, and Lakshmana was uh, the half-brother. He would have been on the left of Rama. So Lakshmana, Sita, and Rama all go to exile into the woods, and they refuse to separate from Rama because they have Dharma commitments to Rama. Now, 
The king begs him to return, but he refuses to return because it is his duty to leave because the king sent him into exile. Now, in exile, he meets a demon king named Ravana. And Ravana, the demon king, lures Sita and captures Sita. So Rama searches for Sita with a, uh, uh, there's a, a monkey figure called Hanuman. Hanuman sometimes gets depicted more as a monkey. Sometimes he's depicted as a kind of more kind of anthropomorphized monkey person. Uh, but he's also a warrior figure uh, with divine ancestry. So he helps Rama go and find Ravana. They kill Ravana and they reunite with Sita. They finally return to the capital. The father has died. They return to the capital and Rama is crowned king. However, there is suspicion as to whether Sita was virtuous because Sita was captured by Ravana and no one had, nobody was there to see whether or not Sita had maintained her virtue. And even though Sita was pregnant, Rama, because he is king, has to fulfill Dharma and exile Sita because her virtue is suspicious. So Sita has twin sons. Later on, these twin sons meet Rama in a battle. So they, they grow up somewhere else. They are leading an army. There's a war. Rama's leading the battle. And this, these twin sons that are Rama's sons, but he doesn't know that they're his sons. I told you, this is like a soap opera drama. Right? They didn't know they were his sons. And finally, they come and they meet in a battle place. And... Um, uh, Rama realizes that he was wrong and he says, Sita, please uh, do this ordeal to prove your innocence. Um, so, but she refuses. She refuses because she knows that she was pure and she refuses to give in to the demands of the, the populace. And the story kind of ends with Sita, with Sita being swallowed up by the Mother Earth. So this idea that she returns to her origins, she'd rather return to her origins than do this purification through fire because she knows she is pure and according to Dharma, she doesn't have to prove it to anybody. And so for many in the Hindu tradition, Sita is seen as a strong female wife figure. Somebody who maintains Dharma but is also not willing to um, bend to the will of others just because other people want her to do something. Um, and from this, from this last bit of the story, there is a lot of alternative Ramayana stories that get told called Stayana. So a Stayana is a story of the Ramayana that focuses on Sita. So in the Hindu tradition, we'll see that, yes, there are many stories with male figures, but there's also many stories that get retold by women and get retold to highlight the female figure or highlight it from a female perspective as well. So again, so Sita would be the one on your right. Rama is the one on the left, and his half brother is the one. Or sorry, Rama is in the middle, and brother half brother is on the left here. The Bhagavad Gita. So the Bhagavad Gita, we get introduced to an incarnation of Vishnu named Krishna. So this is a story about the virtues or vices. Of, of war and one's duty to one's people or nation. So the, the whole story of the Bhagavad Gita consists of Krishna, who is the driver of the chariot, 
And Arjuna, who is the warrior prince in the chariot, debating whether or not they should go to war. That's the, the whole story is a, a debate in a chariot. Now, again, it's in the Mahabharata, which has a ton of stuff. But this one story is a philosophical debate in a chariot. And this story of a debate in the chariot is taken not simply as a story of whether or not one should go to war. It gets taken as a larger moral tale of how one reaches moksha. How one reaches liberation from samsara. So we read it, it could seem like a philosophical story, but really it's an education on liberation. And so the question is, because this battle Arjuna is going into is a battle against other members of his extended family. This is a very Shakespearean tale. You have one side and a family at war with another side of the family, and then they marry and blah, blah, blah. And anyways, lots of interfamily drama and war going on here. And so as Arjuna is going to war, he's saying, is it dharmic for me to fight against my family, or is it dharmic for me to not fight against my family? Where does my dharma lie? Which is the right decision to do? And so this whole philosophical discussion of 18 chapters is what is dharma? What does it mean to be righteous, if you will? Right? What is right action? And so here he will talk about the soul and atman and samsara and karma. Is, is what he doing good karma or bad karma? And in this sense, Krishna gets represented as the personal deity of Vishnu. So from this story, so for example, you may have heard of like the Hare Krishna movement. The Hare Krishna movement comes from the story of Krishna. That Krishna is the incarnation of Vishnu who is here to guide you. Who doesn't leave people, but guides people and brings them into samsara. Brings, sorry, brings them into moksha or liberates them from samsara. And it is Krishna is the one who is going to maintain dharma. Krishna is the one who assures us that the universe is going to maintain stable. So this story is really important for the worship of Krishna in particular, or, and the worship of Vishnu, of which Krishna is one incarnation of Vishnu. I will get to these gods later. It's hard to organize these. I could talk about the gods first and these later, and that gets confusing. Talk about these first and the gods later, and that gets... At some point, it's just the water hose. So here's a drawing of um, Bhagavad Gita. So Krishna is the charioteer. Arjuna is the archer in the back. And I'm assuming they're having a vigorous debate as this goes on. Okay. That was it for text. Beliefs. Okay. So, there is something called the Trimurti. The Trimurti is the basic kind of most general theoretical way in which Hindus understand deities or gods. So remember I said behind all of these is the real, the one real. We'll call it the capital R real. There's the real, which you cannot access. But one level below that is the Trimurti, of which there are three different gods that have three different roles. So you have Brahma. Brahma is not Brahmin. They're different. So that's a lot. So Brahma, Brahma is 
the creator God. Brahman is the one behind him. So Brahman is the real. Brahma is the creator. So distinction with an N. So you have the creator here. This is kind of some old Veda text. They have the creator. Vishnu is the sustainer. Vishnu is the sustainer because he makes sure that Dharma continues. As long as Dharma continues, this will be sustained. And Shiva is the destroyer and the creator. It's a little complicated how, the, how you have two creators. It's, so Brahma is the principle of creation. Shiva does the actual making of creation. So you need Brahma and Shiva together to get creation. There's another way where you have Shiva and his consort to make creation, but that's also, I'll get there. There's no singular story in the Hindu tradition. So any story I tell you, there will be an exception to that. So this is the most general story I can tell you. <laughs> so I'm going to, this is the Trimurti. So Brahma is the one with multiple heads. Vishnu is the one in the middle. And Shiva is the one with the trident. And we'll focus on each one of them independently. So, Bra um, but before I, mm, yeah, I'll do this before I go there. So before I get to that, I want to talk about the cycle of time. I do find it helpful. And if we had a long, long time and we do the Buddha, we would also do like the Sikh tradition and some other traditions, the Jain tradition. <clears throat> Thinking about traditions, religious traditions, not in the sense of monotheism or polytheism or those types of things, but rather thinking through the different religious traditions as different conceptions of time. So generally, there are two ways in which religions think about time. Time is either linear or cyclical. Jewish, Muslim, Christian, uh, Mormon, Baha'i, it's actually, maybe not Baha'i, um, Ahmadiyya, right? These, other these are all linear traditions. There's a creation, you have a story, you have redemption, and then you have salvation. It's one story, one line, that's how it goes. In the Hindu and Buddhist and Jain and Sikh and these other traditions, it's not linear. It's cyclical. There is no beginning of time and there's no end of time. It's cyclical. And this cyclicalness has really important implications on the way in which people practice their religion. Right? If it's linear, it's one and done. You have one shot to make it or not. You either make it or you don't. If it's cyclical, you have multiple shots. You might not remember it, but you have multiple shots. Because it's cyclical. And so it develops a very different way of understanding life and very different way of understanding the earth. And very, it's the way in which time is conceived is very different and there are implications to that. And so in the Hindu tradition, and this gets picked up by other traditions in the area, it's cyclical. Now, these cycles are concentric and they go down. So it's not just cyclical, it's kind of like uh, conical. Cyclical, it's conical in that sense. It's going down. So the first cycle is the golden age. It's the longest cycle. The next cycle, and it, it, dharma is pure. The next cycle is a little less dharma, a little shorter. Next cycle, a little less dharma, a little shorter. All the way until you get to the Kali cycle, which has the least dharma and the shortest. And from there, this universe is destroyed and gets recreated and kind of like a MC Escher kind of thing and it goes back to the beginning and you start again. Dharma, less Dharma, less Dharma, Kali, destruction, start again. 
Shockingly, we are in the age of Kali. <laughs> uh, supposedly, this began 3,102 years ago, or 3,102 BCE. So, we are in the age of Kali. Yeah, for, we'll be here for a while. <laughs> uh, okay, so Brahma. Bra so, what I want you to do is go through these different gods and tell you why they get depicted in the way. So, the way in which these deities are depicted tells you different things about what they believe about the deities. So, each, each picture is actually a story. So, Brahma has four mouths to represent the four Vedas. Because the idea is the Vedas come from Brahma. And there are four books in the Vedas, so each one comes from one mouth. So four heads. So four mouths, four Vedas. He has no weapons because he does not, he does not really, he doesn't destroy. And so he has no weapons. So for, uh, when we look at Shiva or we look at Vishnu, they have weapons. He has no weapons. Um, the beads in his hand represent time because he's the creator of time. He's the principle of creation. So he originates time. Uh, water, lily, so you'll see these repeated a lot. Lotuses are a symbol of creation. So you'll see a lotus depicted a lot. Lotuses are a symbol of creation because they have this kind of unfolding. So the unfolding of creation, the lotus gets that representation. Water is also an important symbol of creation. We'll see this in Shiva as well, that there's water that comes out of Shiva. Um, so Brahma and Shiva will both have um, water associated with them. His consort is Saraswati. Um, Saraswati originally was um, not as much of an uh, important character, but now she is the uh, kind of the god, goddess that looks over education or music, mathematics. Um, at the embassy, the Indonesian embassy in Washington, D.C., they have a large statue of Saraswati in front of their embassy. Although Brahma started as an important figure in the Hindu tradition, today he's a static figure. Uh, most people actually don't really consider or think about Brahma very much. So even though in the Vedas or in kind of the stories he's there, right now for most Hindus he's not really functional. Rather it's these other two gods, and particularly Vishnu. So Vishnu has a number of avatars, so the, the various little symbols around here are his different avatars, his different incarnations, if you will. So he has a number of things. So he has a chakra. So the chakra is a weapon. Um, so it looks like a disc that he has in his hand, kind of spinning it like that. Um, this is to restore dharma. So he cuts down that which would get in the way of dharma. He makes a path for dharma. So the chakra makes a path for dharma. The conch shell represents the sound of exi the sounding existence. It's just kind of like the resonant sound of existence. Um, so there's a conch shell. The club, the gada that he has, symbolizes his authority, his power over the creation, over the, the universe, because he is the sustainer. He's the one that sustains the universe. Uh, the lotus, again, Lord, lotus is very prominent, right? sustainer of creation, but also for him, it's the idea of purity. He has many avatars. I'm just going to focus on a few. I talked about Rama and Krishna. So Rama in the Ramayana, Ramayama, that's, that's an avatar of Vishnu. Krishna in the Mahabharata um, uh, Gita is an in, in avatar of Vishnu. But there's other ones. So Matsya is a fish that saves Manu. Manu is the first human. So 
Manu was going to be drowned in a flood, uh, but Matsya comes and saves the first human. Um, there's another one, Varaha, who is a, uh, a boar who lifts kind of the, the world out of the primordial ocean. Um, the Buddha, the Buddha gets considered as a avatar of, of Vishnu as well. Um, and the belief is that at the very end of the Kali cycle, Vishnu will come as his last avatar. So he'll come as the last avatar at the end of, of that cycle. Okay, Shiva. <clears throat> Shiva does not incarnate. So Vishnu is the only one that co actually comes to the world. Shiva does not. But rather, Shiva has two roles, creator and destroyer. Um, Shiva is also the god of yoga. And his yogic dance is the inspiration of yoga. His consort is Pavarti. Pavarti is perhaps the most important of the female goddesses. She gets taken up into many, many important roles because Pavarti is the energy of creation. So even though Shiva creates, Shiva cannot create without Pavarti. He needs Pavarti for creation. So in that sense, it is actually the female deity that is responsible for creation because without her, Shiva can do nothing. <clears throat> and so you see this represented. This actually gets represented in, in a, uh, honestly, se sexual overtones. So you have representations, what are called lingas, and uh, you have yonis, which are wombs. So in other words, Shiva can create, but without the womb, there is no creation. What is the womb? The cosmos. So Shiva needs Pavarti to make creation. Pa so Pavarti has all the energy, all the potential, all the power, and Shiva is the one that does the maker, making. And he rides a bull named Nandi. A lot of these also have things. Uh, uh, Vishnu rides a, lot, a, lot of, a number of things. Uh, Brahma rides a swan, um, but he rides a bull. Okay, Shiva the destroyer. So this is frequently the pose of Shiva the destroyer. So out of his head comes the water of the Ganges River which is, again, the water of the power of creation. Now, why is the power of creation in the Shiva the destroyer? Because he can destroy, and he can destroy because he created. He can destroy it because he created it. The drum he holds in his hand. So music very much it resonates with the sound of creation. We have the conch shell with Vishnu. The drum is in Shiva's hand. The third eye on his head represents enlightenment. So this third eye symbolism is, is uh, enlightenment. And what is enlightenment? But the destruction of desire. So enlightenment comes through the cessation of desire, the destruction of desire. The trident that he holds in his hand represents three aspects as three points. Each point, creator, destroyer, and preserver. Um, and the, in front of him is the linga, the phallic symbol of creative power. So that's the linga. That's, so he's sitting in, the, in front of him is the linga statue. Now, you may have seen these. Lots of museums have kind of these. Shiva, Lord of Dance. This is not Lord of the Dance, like the Irish step dance. That's a different thing. This is Shiva, Lord of the Dance. So, again, he has the drum, which is the rhythm of the dance, uh, which is of the dance. But around him are Agni. So, Agni are the primordial flames. Um, and these are the primordial flames that he uses in destruction. The eternal, it's this, this kind of super cosmic flame. Not like the fire that we have. Um, his hand is up, so he has one hand up to protect his devotees. So he will protect his devotees in the destruction. 
He has his foot elevated to represent grace. Destruction is not chaotic. It is meaningful and graceful. And his foot usually is on top of a dwarf, the dwarf representing ignorance. Ignorance is what keeps people in the cycle of samsara. Sorry, that tells you this is a lot of stuff. <laughs> so, Pavarti. So, Pavarti contains sh uh, Shakti. Shakti is the power of creation. Um, actually, no, a number of people named Shakti who are, uh, yeah. So, Shakti, you might find people of the name Shakti. Now, she has uh, two different uh, other manifestations. So, she has Pavarti, the consort of Shiva. She also has a manifestation called Durga. Durga is a warrior goddess. And then she has, so you have, you have um, Pavarti, the Shakti power. You have Durga, warrior goddess. And then you have Kali, who is warrior goddess unhinged. Just absolute destruction of all things in front of her. She wears kind of like a chain of heads around her. Um, and she just kind of can slaughter anything in front of her. And so I think it's really interesting to think about this fact that Pavarti, who's a female deity, has two different warrior aspects about her. So it's not just a female deity that happens to be around with Shiva and just kind of has these quote-unquote feminine aspects, but she has very serious warrior aspects to her divine status. Okay, so these are the three forms. Uh, Pavarti is the one with the multiple hands. Durga is the one in the middle. And Kali is the one that has all the heads around her neck. Okay. Um, Kali actually slays Shiva. So she's actually more powerful than Shiva. So, because there you can see Kali slaying uh, Shiva. Okay. Uh, I am going to skip this because I don't have time. <laughs> I will talk, I would like to talk about this, but we don't have to talk about... This is philosophical Hinduism. If you'd like to me explain it, we can do it in Q&A. But I need to move on. So um, if you're on YouTube, you could pause it there and just read it. I do want to talk about yoga because, you know, it's everywhere. Uh, what is yoga? Yoga is not exercise. It includes exercise. But it's not, it is not simply exercise. It is a mental discipline that manifests in physical action to achieve moksha. The goal of yoga is moksha, or escape from the cycle of samsara. It is liberation of the soul. And so this, there, are, there, are a, there is literature called the Yoga Sutras. The Yoga Sutras are a collection of texts. They have an attributed author. But it is a system of moral, physical, philosophical, uh, and um, ethical actions, all together in a package, with the goal of liberation. So when you're doing your various poses, there are um, mental and philosophical concepts that you're supposed to be doing with those poses to achieve liberation of the soul. For moksha. So the goal is not to lose weight. The goal is liberation from samsara. <laughs> if you lose weight on the way, good for you. But it's not the goal. The caste system. Because you might, I know, might have questions. So where did the caste system come from? The story of the caste system comes from another creation story. There are many creation stories. This one has the sacrifice of the god of gods, Purusha. You say, wait, 
but there was just Brahma and Brahmin. What about that? Well, this is a totally different story. So I told you, there's one story and there's an exception to that story. This is a different story. So Purusha creates the universe and out of Purusha's body, you get the four different types of humans. Out of Purusha's head, you get the priests. Um, sorry, so Purusha's mouth, you get the priests. Out of his arms, you get the rulers. Out of his legs, you get the producers. And out of his feet, you get the servants. And then if anyone's not in those, they are the untouchables because they are castless. Now, prior to the first century CE, these castes were existed, but they were not hard and fast. So theoretically, you could move. In the first century CE, there was a text called the Laws of, Man, of Manu, Manu being the first human being. These are a text claiming to be the laws of the first human being. In this text, this is the text that concretizes the caste system in the first century CE. From then on, that's when it becomes static and you can't move until you get reincarnated. Prior to that, it was a little bit more permeable. Now, today, like our modern day and age, the caste system kind of exists. It kind of does and kind of doesn't. So in some places, you'll see it more prominent. In other places, you'll see it less prominent. So for example, in India, they still, in many places, use newspapers to advertise like, um, women looking for uh, a man to marry, a man looking for a woman to marry, and they will put on their caste preference or no caste preference. So they, if they have no caste preference, they don't care. If they have caste preference, they do care. So even in like dating, it'll, it'll be on that. Okay, some practices. Then we'll be done because it's almost been a whole hour. <laughs> okay. I'm talking about bhakti. So bhakti is the way in which most Hindus practice Hinduism. Because most Hindus are not going to sit down and read the Vedas, the Mahabharata Gita, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, or any of these texts. It's not a mental um, practice in that sense. Rather, it's a devotional practice. So for Hindus, many Hindus, Hinduism is a devotional practice. And this came about as a response to the spread of Buddhism. So you had the Hindu tradition, it was going on, and then you had the Buddhist tradition, which was attracting people because it got rid of the idea of um, the caste system. It, it claimed that you could achieve moksha in one lifetime instead of having to do all these different cycles and make it up. You could do it in one lifetime. So people were being attracted to the Buddhist tradition. And so they needed to kind of bring people back to the Hindu tradition. And so there was a development of the bhakti tradition. Or that through your personal devotion to the gods, you could achieve moksha. You don't need to be a priest to achieve moksha. You can get it through devotion, particularly to the god Vishnu. So, or Shiva. Shiva and Vishnu are the two gods that have the most devotional bhakti practices. So each of these groups have their name. So the ones that do bhakti to Vishnu are called Vaishnavas. The group that does bhakti to Shiva are called Shaivas. And then um, um, <clears throat> Pavarti has her own devotees called Shak... Uh, that's a misspelling. It's supposed to be Shaktas. S-H-A-K-T-A-S. Shaktas. Not Skatas. Shaktas. So... Vaishnavas are to Vishnu, Shaivas are to Shiva, and Shaktas are to Pavarti. 
These are the three main devotional groups. So if you go to someone's house who is Hindu, you will most likely find a bhakti shrine in their house. A little place in a corner or closet or someplace where there will be a little statue of Shiva or Vishnu or the goddess. And that is where they do their bhakti devotionals. And they will read stories from texts called the Puranas. The Puranas are not revealed texts, but they are stories of these gods and the various things that these gods do. And so this is how many Hindus practice their tradition. Now, they will go to temples. Temples um, have murtis. So a murti is a representation of the divine in the temple. They are not idols. They are representations of the divine. So, yes, they will bathe the represent, they will bathe the statue. They will offer fruit to the statue. People will come and they will offer, give an offering to the priest. The priest will take the offering to the statue, do some blessings and give it back to them as a blessing. But it is not like the statue can do something. The statue is more like an icon. So in Christianity, we have icons, specifically in like the Orthodox tradition. And the idea is the icon helps us focus worship. And so... The murtis are more akin to this. They help focus worship of the divinity of the divine. The divine presence may be there, but it may not be there. So again, it is not that they're worshiping the actual statue. They're worshiping the power that the statue represents in that sense. <clears throat> now, some Hindus don't agree with this. There are some Hindus who will think it's no. It, this is a full representation of the totality of the, that God and that statue. And then you have some Hindus who will say, there is no God in this statue at all. In fact, there is no God. But they're still Hindu. So you can be a, there's no God Hindu, or you can be a, the God is in this statue Hindu. And you're both Hindu. Just to make it more confusing. Now, temples are not something that you have to go to every single day or even weekly. You should go, and there are, there are high holidays that you're supposed to go to, but it's not like in uh, the Christian tradition on a Sunday, or the Jewish tradition on Shabbat or Sabbath, or the Muslim tradition on Friday. There's not a single day of the week that all the Hindus come together for that temple worship weekly. You have holidays, but apart from that, it's whenever you want. You, it's more like you should go more often than not, but there's no congregational day of meeting in the week. So temples are more a service for the community. And the actual practice of Hinduism happens in the household with the bhakti tradition. Uh, I'm going to skip this because I don't have time. But I want to talk about this. So um, when I talk about bhakti, I want to talk about many times you will see people that have markings on their forehead. And these markings mean something. And so you might see a red dot on the forehead of a woman. Um, now, it's gotten a little bit blurred, but traditionally, it meant a married woman. But now you will see non-married women or even Christian women in India wearing it because it represents, it has this representation of wisdom, the third eye of wisdom, right? Um, but traditionally, it's married women who wore the, the, the bindi, the red dot in the middle. Now, amongst men, you might see different types of lines on the forehead, Two vertical lines on the forehead means someone is a Vaishnava. Two uh, horizontal lines means that they're a Shaiva. So Vaishnava is a, someone who practices bhakti to Vishnu. 
horizontal is Shaiva, Bhakti to the god Shiva. And then the combination of the two together is to the goddess Pavarti. That means they're shakta, uh, uh, yeah, Shaktas. Um, so if you see somebody, they have the lines on their forehead, they have the tilak, then you can at least know a little bit about them. Oh, this is a Vaishnava, this is a Shaiva. This is kind of how they do their practice. Um, I've seen people in Naperville with the, particularly Vaishnavas. I think I've seen more Vaishnavas in Naperville. Um, so I'm just going to go to the reflection part because I'm going to on hard time and we need to finish. So what can we reflect on from the Christian tradition? One, don't assume we understand what other people believe. Because <laughs> everything I just told you cannot apply to someone who says that they're Hindu. <laughs> so really it's intellectual humility. Humility. Like being confronted with a tradition that is so rich and so deep and so much more complex than ours should give us humility when trying to understand somebody else. So just the simple act of intellectual humility before other people. But second, to appreciate diversity within our own tradition. That in the Hindu tradition, we can see so much diversity that still coheres around this narrative of Hinduism. And so as Christians, to be able to look around and see those who are really different from us, but still can acknowledge that they are part of our family. Just like maybe we have members of our family that we don't get along with, or we have a lot of conflict with, but they're still members of our family. So you may look at a Christian community and go, I totally don't agree with them. That's okay. But we should not then make the conclusion, therefore they're not Christian. It's, I don't agree with them. Period. Not, I don't agree with them. They're not Christian. That's not right. God is the one who gets to decide the answer to that question. Our responsibility is being faithful to the gospel, not deciding who's in or out. So, being able to say and look at the diversity and say, yes, we are a big family. We're a complex family. We're going to disagree with each other. And it just is what it is. There's a certain cohesion within the plurality of what it means to be Christian today. And to be more open to that diversity within the Christian tradition. Now, this doesn't mean that all things go. Because at some point, there needs to be a definition of what it is to be a Christian. Because you can't just have anything. Because then it means nothing to be a Christian. So, like the Nicene Creed. To be able to say yes to the Nicene Creed would probably be the lowest bar of what it means to be a Christian. Jesus is human and divine. And the Holy Spirit spoke to the prophets. And there's one God. And Holy Catholic Church. And... You know, that's a pretty good standard to have. You know, if you disagree with the Nicene Creed, it's kind of hard to then say that you're in the Christian tradition. It's the most basic one. You can disagree with the Westminster Confession or the Vatican II or whatever. That's fine. You can disagree with that and still agree with the Nicene Creed. And finally, an appreciation for what our tradition is. So our tradition is not a tradition of doctrines. Our tradition is a tradition of worship. Which comes out in the Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief. So why do we have the Nicene Creed? We have the Nicene Creed because Christians first prayed to Jesus before they put down a doctrine of who Jesus was. Christians first believed in the Holy Spirit before they artic we articulated what we actually believed about, what we actually think about the Holy Spirit. We do things first before we articulate doctrine. And something I appreciate from the Hindu tradition is the doingness aspect of it, despite doctrinal differences. 
That doctrine at some level can be held very loosely in the Hindu tradition, but it is the worship that is important or the bhakti practices that are important. And so being appreciative of our own practices, particularly that of liturgy. Liturgy is the act of teaching Christians how to worship. And so what does it mean that we have a liturgy of singing, a liturgy of communion, a liturgy of confession? How do we pray? When do we pray? Every worship service has a liturgy and every liturgy has a theology behind it. So if you go to a church that is, if, you know, if our church all of a sudden is just song, sermon, song, done, there is a certain theological understanding behind that. If it is more very high church where it's every day we start with a praise song and then we do a song of confession and then we confess and then we have assurance of faith and then we have the word of God and then we have communion. And that, that's also theology because it's saying how a Christian should think about the faith. So liturgy, the thing we do every Sunday is actually educating us on how to be Christians. And that's something I appreciate when I look at the bhakti tradition of the Hindu tradition is it prompts me to reflect on what are my own practices that affect my theology. Not, it's not how does my theology affect my practice, but the other way around. How does my practice affect my theology? And I think we tend to do the first. I think it and then I do it. But really, historically, Christians have done the opposite. We do it and then we think about it. So, thank you for sticking with me for the whole hour and two minutes. This is extra long. I didn't even get to everything. <laughs> but you can always go on YouTube and pause it on the slide. Um, and I will now be taking questions. But thank you again. This has been the Loving God Through Loving Neighbor class from Knox Presbyterian Church. To find out more about our missions and ministry, visit us at knoxpres.org. That's K-N-O-X-P-R-E-S dot org. You can join us for worship in person or watch our live streams every Sunday morning. Thanks and see you next week.